I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. This week on the show, we've got Alex Mikulich, the author of the book, Unlearning White Supremacy, A Spirituality for Racial Liberation. Um, it's out from Orbis Books. And it is an expansive book, I think, that doesn't just talk about um, white supremacy from the perspective of like individualism or, uh, I don't know, other <laughs> other sort of like smaller ways to think about it. It is expansive. It thinks about um, the ways that white supremacy is ingrained in our culture from uh, the history that we tell ourselves about colonization, um, about the ways that we think about capitalism, uh, about ecology and growth. And it's got a lot going on in it. That's what I'm here to say. (laughs) It does. Uh, I think also I am always suspicious when anybody uses the language of anti-racism today, not because it's bad, but because I never know what anybody means by it. And uh, it's one of those phrases that maybe gets kind of memefied in some weird ways. But something I like about Alex's book is that for him, it means really digging into the, the deep structures and history and everything else that has produced white supremacy, colonialism, et cetera. And I think that is really good. Um, also suspicious whenever white people talk about racism, myself included, <laughs> and I think uh, the the book is helpful at least as a, a way of kind of giving you that broad uh, perspective and even digging into things like the Catholic tradition and, and so on. So lots of different moving parts to check out and uh, good to have Alex talk to us a little bit about many of those, uh, but not all of those moving parts in the next hour. Yep, totally. Well, we'll stop prefacing what we think about the book (laughs) we'll just uh we'll get right to the interview so here's alex alex thanks for coming on the show to talk with us uh whenever we have a new author on the podcast we always start just by asking them for uh, an elevator pitch for the book so supposing you're an elevator and you're going to the top floor and you have a minute to explain it to us how would you pitch your book um unlearning white supremacy it starts off with dealing with a problem how do we white Americans unlearn the untruths by which we have been malformed over the last 500 years. It's unlearning white supremacy. And that notion of unlearning comes from, um, I'm drawing from Malcolm X. Malcolm X used to talk to black people to say saying that we black folks have to unlearn the untruths of white supremacy and we have to unlearn the untruths of internalized inferiority and what this book is about is flipping the script so to speak and looking at how white folks have to unlearn the untruths of a superiority complex that we've been malformed in morally and spiritually for like 500 years. So by unlearning, I'm talking about what I mean is acknowledging Um, gaining consciousness of and undoing the many ways 
that we have been malformed by this age of modernity coloniality. And too often, I think, um, in the ways that I grew up and in um, my primary and secondary education, you know, we tend to assume that modernity, um, this thing that's developed over the last 500 years is, is only a good thing, that it's about progress, modernization, development, it's it's all good, and it's this uh, it's just this river of progress, but we ignore the oppressive side of modernity. We ignore that oppressive side of the Atlantic slave trade, of genocide of First Peoples in the Americas. We ignore um, that oppressive side to our peril because that's that's where we we need we need to unpack that so the first part of the book is is taking up that that reality by developing a critique of modernity coloniality and the way that white supremacy in particular is a piece of a larger um social, political, historical framework of multiple oppressions, okay? And then the second part of the book suggests a decolonial way of taking up the gospel call that the first become last and that the last become first. I mean, the gospel, gospel love and justice is really about um, turning over, transforming um, social, political, economic orders of domination. Um, and yet that aspect of the call of Jesus and Christianity is, is too often ignored or elided. And so what I'm doing in the second part of the book is to suggesting concrete practices or what I call a decolonial praxis um, that, that suggests specific things that we can do through rituals, through prayer, protests, and lament as a way of, um, or as ways of taking up joining in vulnerable communion with black, brown, and indigenous brothers and sisters, and also in joining in vulnerable communion, communion with all of our non-human kin. So that the whole point of this praxis is a transformation of ourselves and the world so that all may thrive. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Uh, as listeners can probably guess, there are many different threads in the book as you unpack these things. And I appreciate that you kind of affirm that it's such a complicated uh, uh, set of, of stuff that you have to get into if you really want to unlearn white supremacy and, and get at the, the kind of goal or thesis of what you're about. Um, maybe, uh, before we get into some of those specific threads, I'm curious, what, what was maybe your motivations in writing it? What prompted you to do it? Uh, what kind of got you working on, on this? Yeah. So, um, there's several different, um, threads in my own life, um, that, that lead to this. Um, I think a couple of keys has to do with um, my wife, Kara, and I, um, it, when we were living in San, Franci San Francisco, we joined a Black Catholic parish. And at that parish, we, we experienced um, a love of the gospel, um, to, put, to put it 
really briefly in a way that we had not experienced anywhere else. And it was there that I was, I was serving as a lay pastoral associate. Um, and in that role, um, I was um, facilitating a weekly um, Bible reflection prayer group that was made up of more than a dozen mostly African-American women. And in that role, I really became a student to them. And while I tried to provide some biblical scholarship, you know, through our conversations, I really um, became a student of their wisdom and, and experience. And that's one key st starting point. And in that context at Sacred Heart Parish in San Francisco, Kara and I then became inspired to adopt cross-racially. Um, and in preparation for adoption, um, you know, our Black brothers and sisters were saying to us, you have to take you have to take up anti-racism as a way of life. And in doing that and taking up anti-racism, um, we, you know, we learned that in, and we, we ended up adopting um, African-American children um, and, and our whole lives you know, taking care of them, we've also been learning from them. So those experiences have really been a reorientation of my whole life. Um, and then in, in taking up the work of anti-racism facilitation um, over the last almost 20 years, um, you know, I've been learning that, you know, white folks, we have yet to learn from wisdom figures who have gone before us, both black and white, and that includes um, Thomas Merton. You know, so I can dig into Merton and how Merton um, was really critical in the genesis of, of this book. Um, so I, let's see, it was like, it was in 2014 that I presented, I did a presentation for the Thomas Merton Society, the International Thomas Merton Society um, on Merton's book, Seeds of Destruction. And what I get into there is Merton's book, Seeds of Destruction. I, I think it's I think it's his best work in terms of integrating contemplation, a contemplative life with prophetic action. Um yet it's it's a work that's very unknown. Like white Americans do not know Merton's work. You know, Merton is known for introducing Americans to the contemplative life. He's also well known for introducing um, people all over the world to the wisdom of Eastern faith traditions. Um, Yet he's not known for seeds of destruction, which I think is one of his really most critical works. And it's interesting because when Merton first came out with seeds of destruction in 1964, in the middle of the civil rights movement, seeds of destruction was reviewed by the theologian Martin Marty. Um, Martin Marty at the time was teaching at the University of Chicago Divinity School. 
And Martin Marty just trashed Merton's book. He just had this really uh, painful critique of Merton, just said Merton was just totally off. But it's interesting, um, before, um, before Merton died in Thailand in 1968, um, Martin Marty apologized. He apologized to, Mer to Merton for his critique because he said Martin Marty admitted that he was all wrong and that Merton was right. Martin was prophetic. Um, and in doing the work of anti-racism that I've been doing, especially with Pox Christi USA on their anti-racism team, um, my experience of my both my own personal experience and experience of white folks is that Merton is right on. Um, you know, Merton was really incisive in his very insightful in the way that he called out white folks and our presumed innocence. Um, so that's really a key starting point. I could I can dig into that quite a bit more, but that's that's a key um, kind of intellectual and spiritual history of how I got into this. And then another piece of this is um, a conference that I attended in 1988 on Thomas Merton and Martin Luther King. And I learned at that time that, you know, the Catholic historian Albert Rabiteau talked about how Martin Luther King had planned to go on retreat with Merton at Gethsemane um, in Kentucky at, at Merton's Trappist Monastery two weeks after he was assassinated. You know, so those plans were happening before Martin Luther King's assassination. So really this book is my own imagining of an invitation to you and everyone else out there to really think about, well, if, if Thomas Merton and Martin Luther King came together in a conversation, what, what would happen? What would be the word that they would have spoken? What word of the gospel would they have challenged us to enter into? So that's, that's a little bit of the background of how I got into this particular work. Cool. That's some really good orientation to the book. And I think some of the vibe of the book for sure. Um, a word that you've used a lot is formation. And it's one I can really appreciate. I think that makes sense to talk about, you know, unlearning and formation and the ways that we are formed, I think wrongly to be uh, white supremacists and to perpetuate a type of white supremacy. Something I found really interesting in your book is the way that you help us, I think, uh, re-understand history or relearn history uh, in light of uh, white supremacy and coloniality and, and so on. You have a chapter called The Roman Catholic Origins of Coloniality that I think is especially good and powerful. Um, what's interesting about it is that it tells a story of Christianity that demonstrates how racism and colonialism are not like accidental. People didn't do those things because it, you know, because they were bad people, but they did it, I think, because of their Christianity, because of the type of, like, structures of power that they were building. Um, you know, white European Christians, they they use the powers and mechanisms of the, of the Catholic Church, for example, uh, among other things, to do the work of colonization. Uh, you talk about the Treaty of Tordesillas and other things like that. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that chapter and what understanding, like, that story of colonization gives contemporary Christians who are trying to practice anti-racism in their own lives. I was at a conference in Birmingham, Alabama, um, commemorating Martin Luther King's uh, letter from Birmingham jail. And at that conference, um, 
it was interesting because um, an African-American friend came up to me and said, you know, Alex, you, you got to deal with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church started all of this. You know, we, in the same way um, that we white Americans tend to presume innocence um, and presume that racism is something out there separated from us, um, you know, we don't, we don't pick that up out of nowhere. One of the places where I learned that learn the presumption that that I'm innocent of racism is in the church. And if we if we look back and look at the history, um, we need to look at the history to understand why the Roman Catholic Church in the United States does not take up white privilege it doesn't take up white supremacy because it's so mixed up with it historically and so we have to look at how the roots of coloniality and colonialism is in the teachings of the early and medieval catholic church um and those you know, I, in that particular chapter, I dig into four integrated teachings of the church that create the conditions of the possibility of um, the Atlantic slave trade. So what are those, those teachings? The first one is supersessionism. What is supersessionism? You know, um, people hear that that's that's a big word. Well, it's it's the church theology, church's theology of replacement, the idea that Christianity somehow replaces Judaism rather than looking at how Christianity is engrafted in the wisdom and witness of Judaism, um, supersessionism is one of the roots of Christian racism and separating ourselves as superior. So that's something that's really key in the 13th, 14th century. Um, and then integrated with supersessionism on the part of the church is also the idea of the papacy as empire, okay? And we, we tend to think of, here in the United States at least, we tend to think of racism as an individual thing, but really what the creation of different racisms is, is about a struggle for a monopoly of social power and the church certainly pursued its own struggle for a monopoly of social power and one of the ways it did that is claiming that the pope is superior and that the church through the the papacy is you know is the empire is the leading empire of of the world of the world so so it creates a situation where the papacy is synonymous with the domination of everyone and everything such that the pope thinks that um you know in two treaties in the in the late 15th and early 16th centuries that the church can literally geographically separate the world into parts and giving one part to Spain and giving another part to Portugal. You know, so that's why today we have, you know, um, uh, the Americas is split up 
was split up between Spain and Portugal. And we still have, that still remains in terms of the languages. Um, but then another piece, another part of the teaching is the Crusades. And the Crusades is a way that the church lived out the papacy as empire. It's a way that the church lived out a theology of replacement. And then finally, the fourth um, teaching is that of dispossession of unbelievers. And so the, the church believed that it could dispossess um, people of other faiths, of Judaism and Islam, from their lands, from their resources, um, as, as a part of, of papal empire, as a part of a transformation of the world into Catholic Christianity. So I break down those, those four teachings and get in, in that chapter, don't have the time and space here, but I get into how papal um, teachings and bulls through, throughout um, the 13, 1400s and 1500s um, set up the African slave trade and also set up the genocide of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. So unless we understand that, um, you know, um, unless we understand that context, we cannot understand why, for example, you know, last year indigenous peoples in Canada were calling out the Pope to, um, you know, to, um, to take up um, responsibility for that history and take up responsibility for repair of that history. Um, and the church's response last year and the Pope's, re Pope's response partially took up um, indigenous people's call, but didn't really um, name its own complicity in that history that I delve into in that ch chapter, the Roman Catholic origins of coloniality. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, there are so many details definitely that we could get into, but they're done well in the book. So people will just have to go get it and, and read it in more detail there. Uh, and I think one thing that is so helpful is uh, that commitment to seeing Christianity as a kind of world making thing and, and building a, a racialized world of white supremacy in particular, uh, such that, you know, the story of uh, of Christianity and race doesn't start with the civil rights movement or even with slavery in the United States, but has these much, much deeper roots. So, um, yeah, I think that's especially helpful for Catholics to understand um, and, and a useful kind of tool that you provide. Um, I'm curious, too, a little bit about some things you were mentioning on the way here. You know, you're involved in Pax Christi, which for folks who don't know is a, a Catholic social movement devoted to peace, a really powerful international movement, um, which I think is really fascinating to kind of think of how your work feeds into that movement work. Um, you mentioned uh, adopting uh, transracially, which I think is also interesting. And and probably you have many feelings about that, too. I know that there's a lot of criticism of that kind of thing and, and lots of kind of discourse and dialogue around it. I wonder, how does kind of doing all this study um, feed into some of those uh, those active choices that you're making um, and, and kind of thinking through how to be an anti-racist person in the Catholic Church, in the United States, et cetera? How does that kind of feed into your, your choices and, and kind of where you're spending your time and energy? In terms of adopting cross-racially, you're right that, you know, there are really strong African-American critiques of white people adopting cross-racially. Um, and, you know, Kara and I actually um, entered into conversation with Black Americans about that as part of our preparation to adopt. 
Um, and also, I have to say, we were encouraged by um, by Black Catholics on the condition that we take up anti-racism anti -racism as a way of life. And so I, I think a really key, a really key piece in that is that I did dig into the book is um, this reality of um, what you know W. E. B. Du Bois um, talks about the gift of double consciousness. And one thing um, that I do in the book is I'm also inviting white folks to take up take up reading people like W.E.B. Du Bois, take up Malcolm X, take up Brian Massengale, Sean Copeland, take up James Baldwin. Um, as that's one easy way to begin to attend to how we're living a lie of white supremacy. Um, it's also a way to begin to look at the world differently. To, you know, the gift of double consciousness is beginning to co-sense, to feel, to feel with Du Bois his experience of, um, you know, he talks about feeling split, feeling his two-ness. Um, he talks about, you know, he's, um, there's this split between being American and being uh, Black African. Um, and if we can enter into his, the gift that he provides in inviting us into that experience, that's a enter and entering into looking at the at the whole world in a completely different way. It also invites us to to unpack and undo internalized white superiority. And so that work for me is both personal, and then it was also in working with Pax Christi, um, it's, that's a part of the prophetic praxis piece that is also contemplative. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do in the book is invite people into a number of ways of integrating, um, you know, with Merton, you know, the contemplative and a prophetic um, praxis. Your book has got a lot of big ideas in it, a lot of unlearning, a lot of relearning, a lot of reorientation, a good and complicated work. I think it's, it's hard to, you know, um, it's hard to do, I think, as a person. Um, but it, I mean, your book makes it very clear that you're committed to the struggle. I think that's very interesting. Uh, one part of your book that I think is really fascinating is, is that you pay a lot of special attention to ecology, uh, and climate change, uh, and, um, decolonial ideas that come with that. Uh, but also there's a real emphasis in your work on degrowth. I think that's quite fascinating. Um, degrowth is a topic that our podcast likes to talk about <laughs> maybe too much, um, and definitely going to be made worse by this question. Um, but, uh, you know, degrowth is an idea that's gained, I think, a lot of traction in the recent few years, especially in Europe. I think it's an idea that people are taking a lot more seriously when it comes to coming come, when it comes to uh, different types of like orientations towards uh, like political policy and climate change. Uh, a lot of times you'll read kind of like dry economic and environmental explanations of the idea, which I think are good. Don't get me wrong but they are dry. <laughs> but uh, could you talk about how uh, some of the environmental ideas and how degrowth fits into the idea behind your book? I, I guess, you know, how would you connect the dots between 
anti-racism, coloniality, and yeah, that's a, that is that is a really that's a great that's a great question. You know, when I was talking at the beginning about how do we unlearn the untruths of white supremacy, that means we have to we have to look at um, a com- kind of take up a complete transformation of consciousness. Um, another way of thinking of that is, um, you know, in the beginning of that last chapter where I talk about ecological into intimacy, and I, I want to come back to that word intimacy, but but at the very beginning of the chapter, I talk about, I quote, you know, I've been talking about W.E.B. Du Bois, and Du Bois has a very um, succinct description of whiteness. He says, whiteness is domination of the earth forever and ever. Amen. So we have we have to remember that white supremacy is wrapped up with the growth and the development of the Atlantic slave trade and capitalism. Um, and we, you know, so that means digging into the interconnectedness, the eco, the ecosystem of white supremacy is all wrapped up with economics. Okay. And, um, so with degrowth, degrowth, it's not really a great term in English. You know, I think a better way to think about it is the French and Italian words. The French word is decroissance, decroissance, which evokes an ecological imagination. And what decroissance means is it's about a how a river, after a river floods, a river returns to its usual flow, okay? So that um, natural process of flooding is a good thing for the earth, it's transformative, but then the earth has ways of returning to levels of balance. Um, And degrowth evokes that imagination. Unfortunately, that English word degrowth, you know, we, we think of, I think in, our American mind, we think of degrowth automatically. We're thinking of like austerity, um, and or we're thinking that 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 means um, you know we have to um, um, It, it it's it's some kind of painful economic reversal but instead what decroissance and also the italian term descritta i'm not probably not saying the italian right what they're talking about is living in tune with the radical abundance of the earth and local ecologies throughout creation. And 
you know, that notion of radical abundance is, is very much in Pope Francis's um, encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, right? Um, and he's inviting us to shift from growthism. You know, we can talk about cap capitalism, but maybe right now it's better to think of growthism. It's the idea that we have to have perpetual economic growth um, to live. And yet, actually, you know, there were a group of economists um, that wrote about this back in 1974, you know, because this idea that we can have perpetual economic growth doesn't work with the resources of the earth because the resources of the earth are finite. Um, and we don't have enough earths. You know, um, economists have pointed out that we would need like five earths to fulfill the perpetual economic growth that the richest 1% are living by right now. Yeah, and speaking of that too, just the the one earth that we have, sorry to interrupt you, I'm just thinking we're getting to the the end of our hour and there's so many other things we want to talk about. But <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of that one earth that we do have, uh, another kind of thing I thought you might want to pull in or I'd be curious to hear you talk about is the, the St. Francis connection. You mentioned Pope Francis. And I guess I'm so eager to ask this question because Matt and I are writing a book on degrowth in St. Francis, um, which we had pitched before reading your book. And then we were like, okay, there's something going on here. Like people are making these connections, you know, D there's something kind of resonating in St. Francis and degrowth. So talk to us a little bit about that. How did St. Francis kind of make his way into your, your book? And what does he offer both on the, the degrowth conversation, but kind of connecting to unlearning white supremacy as well? Yeah, so I, I think that's a great question. I think the issue is we're we're um, we're we're at a particular impasse right now, um, and that impasse is in a culture of climate denial and a culture of growthism. Um, how do we? how do we live a transformation from a um, egocentric, individualistic, um, capitalist way of life to living in tune both with the earth and also in tune with indigenous peoples? You know, one of the, one of the best resources for defending the diver diversity of ecological life in the world is to defend the life of indigenous peoples throughout the whole world. Um, and St. Francis invites that. St. Francis has invites a way of um, living with and for peoples who are oppressed and for um, oppressed creatures. You know, Francis is all about hearing both the cries of the earth and hearing the cries of oppressed peoples around the earth. We need to hear both of those cries together. Francis calls us to hear those cries. And, and Pope Francis, in his celebration of, of St. Francis's um, you know, canticle of the creatures is inviting us into shifting our whole way of being um, to to reorient uh, our way of being to um, black and indigenous ways of living in concert with the whole of creation. Um, 
And so that's where I think, I think you're right on, like, to talk about there's so much, you know, I just began to, I think, um, you know, I, I was working with Francis as one avenue for entering into a way of living um, in the radical abundance of God's creation. And I think, I think that's, you know, I think I would love to be in conversation with that work that you're doing because that's really critical work. Um, I think Francis is, is one of those key resources to help us really understand the, the depth and breadth of what degrowth is, you know, and living a ecologically centered way of life cool well i'm i'm glad that um we got such a positive response from you about it that makes me feel good um but yeah i mean i think that there's a lot there right um francis kind of gives you a different way to think about the world not just humans but non-humans um turning over a lot of assumptions uh that we i think we hold about ourselves and our places in, in, in the universe um well uh man i'd love to talk to you more about saint francis for sure <laughs> definitely um a current obsession of ours uh, but uh, since we are coming up to the end of the hour, uh, Alex, maybe you could just tell us where people can uh, find your book and follow you uh, for, for more. Yeah, so um, the book is available. It's available from Orbis Books. So one way is just to go directly to um, Orbis Books. Um, you know, um, that's one way. Another way is if if you want to support your local independent bookshop um you can order it through them um if you want to order online um bookshop.org is is a great way to support independent booksellers um you know my book is available there so um those are those are three ways you know, you, you can get the book and, um, um, you know, I do have, I do have, um, a website, Alex Um, that's A L E X M I K U L I C H.com. And there's a link there to, to buy the book as well. That's how you can get the book. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, Great. Thanks well, so much. there's lots going on in there and, and worth checking out. Uh, and maybe with the last kind of five minutes or so, too, I just wonder what's been the reception of the book? I, I'm always so fascinated, especially I think when people write books about these kind of hard topics and, and even personal journeys and so on, you know, unlearning white supremacy. And I think especially when you're plugged into social movements and different kinds of communities, I, I always love kind of hearing what are people saying and, and what are you kind of hearing about feedback? And this can be a good maybe teaser for folks who want to get the, the book to maybe hear how people are reacting. to. Here, I, I won a um, ACTA Foundation grant to pilot a um, Catholic parish anti-racism adult education program. Um, so I did that in a couple of parishes on the East Coast. And and one of those parishes really has has taken up taken up the book um, as as a way of life, um, you know. So the reception there is, you know, it's pretty cool how um, people are are doing it to create a strategy for anti racism anti racist transformation of their parish. Um, I'm also working with a um, a uh, faith-based uh, coalition in Rochester, New York, um, where a number of people there have taken up the book in that anti-racism effort. So it's it's um, been a source of transformation in those places. It's also been utilized i've utilized it for um leading um uh, retreats for all chaplains of at jesuit colleges and universities um and i'm trying to reach out to 
um, Jesuit and other retreat centers um, to utilize utilize the um, concrete praxis and practices of the book as a way of taking up um, the work of undoing anti-black white supremacy. So it's it's um, you know hopefully we, you know we can keep going with that um, because it's it's still um, I think it's still I can be a really dynamic conduit for transformation. Great. Thanks uh, for coming on the show, Alex, and look forward to hearing uh, more later on. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, if you support us at one or two, or $2, I think, man, I couldn't even tell you what our own Patreon is doing these days. But if you do support us at a monetary value, um, <laughs> you can get an invite to our cool Discord channel where we are currently reading the Bible together. You probably heard about that already, uh, but maybe not. It's great, though. It's a lot of fun. We're having a good time doing it. Um, you can also, I don't know, be a part of the big Magnificast universe of listeners. It's great. Um, sometimes we do uh, also a behind the paywall podcast. That we haven't been doing very much recently, but our lives are busy. So just cut us some slack. Uh, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have